Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back again to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with Tina Spring, and we are together with Dr. Natalie Toyce. Once again, this is our second time with her. Thank you very much for coming back. She is a board-certified veterinary dermatologist. She specializes in her practice at MedVet here in Worthington, Ohio. And she has come back to talk to us again about the huge field of canine dermatology. Cats have dermatologists too, but but they're going to have to find their own podcast. So, Tina, I think you have the first question for our second episode with Dr. Toys. Hey, Natalie. So, um, can you speak quickly about kind of the silly things that that families sometimes do following, you know, what is maybe well-meaning but not awesome advice about taking care of their dogs, hair, skin, coat, that kind of stuff? Yes. No, this is this is great. Thank you very much for having me back. I enjoyed my first um, podcast recording. It was my first ever, by the way. Um, so... Well, you're welcome back anytime, anytime here on Your Family Dog. So we can, um, we can talk about pustules and oozing anytime you want. Yeah, maybe we'll like do a Halloween recorded one where it's really <laughs> gross, like crusty pustule like stuff that I really think is interesting and even my fellow veterinary colleagues think is super gross. I don't know. Um, but yes, back to Tina's specific question. Um, yeah, I think that we get... Um, clients that come to me, sometimes they're given, whether it's a quote unquote old wives tale or an urban legend um, or a new fad that's come out. Um, so I certainly there are things I think one of them is um, that bathing a dog dries out its skin, um, which is not necessarily true at all. I think that um, a pet or dog needs to be bathed with a dog shampoo. It doesn't have to be a fancy medicated prescription shampoo, but dog skin pH is a different level than human skin pH. So using my whatever suave, whatever shampoo I'm using at home on my dog um, is not necessarily the ideal thing for their skin and coat. Um, So something that's gentle and moisturizing, um, that's non-medicated for an average healthy skin dog um, is appropriate. And, you know, they maybe can be bathed. It obviously depends on the scenarios. And if a dog, you know, has gotten really muddy well, and they're getting bathed once a week, that's fine if they need it. You know, some pets may only need to be bathed every four to six weeks, depending on their lifestyle. Um, in my veterinary dermatology practice, we may be using bathing as an actual treatment for that patient. So some of those pets, if they need a specific treatment, they may be getting bathed multiple times a week as a way to deliver medication to them. Um, And again, that's, you know, under our veterinary guidance, but I do oftentimes, as I make recommendations about bathing, the clients say, oh, but I heard that's drying out the skin and it it doesn't necessarily um, do that. So I think that pets can probably be bathed more often than a lot of people think. Um, okay. doesn't mean, mean they need to be bathed, you know, every other week. But, um, another thing that I, um, find I need to educate. So I want to make sure that we're all talking about it is dogs ear canals are shaped different than ours. Um, so if we think about our ears and our ear canal, our ear canal goes straight inward to our eardrum essentially. 
Um, dogs' ear canals are L-shaped, so if you hold your right hand up and your index finger is pointing to the sky or the ceiling and your um, thumb is pointing, you'll make an L-shape. And so that's the way a dog's ear canal is shaped. So the tip of your index finger is the opening of the ear canal, and then it sort of curves around, and the tip of your thumb is where the eardrum would be. And so if we're using Q-tips in a dog's ear, you're ending up just sort of mashing whatever's in there right at that junction of the L, where the two parts of the L come together. Um, it's, again, people are doing this because they're trying to be beneficial, want to dry out their dog's ear or whatever, um, or try to get material out, but it's really not helping. And if the pet has an ear infection or ear inflammation, that can actually maybe be more uncomfortable and abrasive in the ear canal. Um, there are specific products designed to be an ear cleaner for a dog. So after a dog is bathed, my recommendation is just to use an ear cleaning and drying agent. And your veterinarian would have recommendations about what to use um, so that that way any moisture or dampness or water that got in the ear during the bathing process, that ear cleaning and drying agent will dry it out. The same would be true if the pet went swimming um, after the swimming um, event, then to use that cleaning and drying agent. Which brings up a question to me. In the last episode, we talked about uh, some specialties. Um, my oh. question is for you is, is are there ear, nose, and throat doctors for vets? That's, actually, that you? that's a great question. And I forgot that that's a common thing that comes up. So I'm glad you asked that question, Julie. There are not ear, nose, and throat doctors for dogs or ENTs for dogs. Um, I am sort of an ENT as a dermatologist. So because that external ear canal, that L-shaped one is lined by skin, dermatologists, veterinary dermatologists address the ears a lot in dogs because a lot of ear problems are ear infections, external ear, or maybe external into the middle ear. Um, if we're dealing with something in the inner ear that maybe is affected by balance, um, a dog may have vertigo. Sometimes our veterinary dermatologists see it, but if we're seeing a specialist, a lot of times it's a veterinary neurologist. So dealing okay. with the nervous system, because that may be the brain or the inner ear compartment. How do you um, know if a dog has vertigo? <laughs> a dog, if a dog has vertigo, um, there's a few different things you can see, but commonly what owners are noticing is their dog can't walk in a straight line. So essentially they're feeling very dizzy and off balance, like they just got off a tilt-a-whirl. So they ah. can't walk in a straight line. They may fall to the side or sort of walk in a circle or their Perfect. eyes may bat back and forth. Right. Okay. Nystagmus vestibular. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Well, there's, a, there's a, a condition my sister, who's an occupational therapist, treats in children called gravitational insecurity, which is not really vertigo, but it's, it's the inability to know where, where down is. You have, okay. you're, you're insecure about the gravitational pull. So these are kids yeah. who can't play on swings or go upside down on playgrounds and stuff because they don't know where down is. Their vestibular yeah. system is messed yeah. up. So yeah. she works a lot with teaching these kids how to move on playgrounds. And, and actually the stuff that she does, it, it may not sound like much, but she helps them to be able to play, which I think yeah. is just amazing. So well, I don't know if dogs get gravitational insecurity, but they do, apparently they do get vertigo. So that's good to know. Yep. Yep, dogs can get vertigo, and there's lots of different reasons they could get it, but if they have a middle or an inner ear problem, it can cause the symptoms of vertigo. And so, just like we talked about in the last podcast, sometimes there's some overlap or fuzziness as to 
which specific specialist is the best one. But we usually work together as a team. Um, so a patient may come to see me um, with an ear problem and other things. And I realize, oh, you know what, we need to get this neurology specialist involved because I think there's something happening deeper in the brain. It's not just an ear problem. And I will say, having had several experiences at MedVet, um, one, you re- that is really true. You, your, your, um, um, your specialties do overlap. I had a dog who was being treated for cancer, and he developed severe dry eye. And so he was immediately sent over to the ophthalmology. And because yeah. he was a cancer patient, it was a different form of treatment. And really, your specialists do work very well together. I, I, it, was, it was very seamless. It, it wasn't... Yeah. Like, oh, now you have to go across town and make another appointment and, you know, see this specialist or anything else. It was it was quite seamless. So you're very good at MedVet about having those specialty units work together. So I would I just my little pitch for MedVet <laughs> cooperation. You are a very cooperative group of people. So. Well, I'm glad you had that experience. I, you know, nobody comes to MedVet because their pet is healthy. So I'm sorry that people have to experience MedVet in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I'm glad that was an experience for you. I am spoiled working there because of that. I can really focus on just my specialty. Um, colleagues of mine who are veterinary dermatologists may not work in such a, um, an especially hospital that has so many different specialists available. So we do have to um, work around or, or communicate with other buildings, other businesses in, in the area or across the country, depending on where you're working. So I feel very spoiled in my job in that respect. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So we, so what are some of the other common misconceptions that people oh, yes. may have? We got distracted by the ears. So I guess along with the ears, you know, sometimes I'll have a, a client um, or I meet somebody and in, in, not at work, but they tell, oh, I have a cocker spaniel and they've always had ear infection problems, but it's just the cocker spaniel ears. That's not really a thing. Like dogs with floppy ears don't inherently have to have ear infections. Um, And sort of the reverse, I've seen dogs with erect or ears that stand up that have had really bad recurrent ear infection problems, like a German Shepherd, perhaps, you know, they never really have floppy ears. And so there's 99.9% of the time, there's some underlying reason why they're prone to getting those ear infections. And there's lots of different reasons. Skin-related allergies are very common, but there can be other things that make them prone to it. Now, it's sort of, to me, like a person who gets a sinus infection. Well, you know, if I have a dog and he gets an ear infection every every three years, I might not say, well, what's the reason this is happening every three years, just like if I had a sinus infection. But if it's happening multiple times or it goes away and comes right back, then to me, if that were my sinus infection, I'd be like, why does this keep happening? Why am I having this happen mm-hmm. repeatedly within a short period of time? The same for a pet's ear infection. Is it just not being treated the right way to get rid of it? Or is it go away and come back? And so whatever that underlying cause is still there and we need to deal with that directly. Could In other words, a- not every ear infection needs to see the veterinary dermatologist. <laughs> right. But could it be... Uh- could ear infections be a symptom of allergies? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely ear infections of the external ear canal. So that L-shaped ear canal can definitely be a symptom of allergies. That's something we actually deal with fairly commonly in veterinary dermatology. Um, So how do you determine the allergen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And we're going to talk some more about that because the two big categories of allergies that are associated with ear infections in dogs um, would be environmental allergies. Um, we talked about this a little bit in the first podcast or what we call atopic dermatitis or 
diet triggered issues, um, which we'll call food allergies. But if we were to get technical and if any immunologist or veterinary dermatologists are listening, it's not really an allergy, but we'll we'll call it food allergies. Um, and so those two things can look very similar in terms of signs and symptoms that a, that you as the pet owner may notice or even me as the veterinarian may see on examination. Um, so in dealing with a pet that has a, a dermatology problem, having what we call the history or having the background information um, is crucial. Your veterinarian or, or one of the nurses that works with your veterinarian, and, and I am always asking the clients, and, and I have it easier too, because usually pets are coming to see me after something's been going on for a while. So we already have some background history. It's not something that just happened last week. So we want to know, is it happening at all different times of the year? Those sorts of things. Um, we don't have any good tests for food allergies in dogs or cats. Um, unfortunately, I wish we did. Um, by tests, I mean something where we could draw a blood sample or do some little pricks on the skin um, or analyze other bodily fluids to say yes or no. These are the things that your pet is reacting to food-wise or not. And that's, we don't have reliable testing like that. Um, there have been many of us veterinarians who have tried to figure out an easier test, but we can't. So to sort out food, we so have to I, change. I'm yeah. actually going to ask you a question then. Yes. Because I am, so my practice is across the U.S. and Canada. Okay. So I'm pretty regularly talking to people that their dogs have had what appear to be food sensitivity issues that their vets have not been able to solve, including sometimes going to specialists. And we've had great success with the saliva testing from NutriScan. Yeah, so it's that's an, an area that's been investigated. And so the we get a little technical when we talk about whether a test is is a good test or not. So if we're if I'm trying to as a scientist say, is this test accurate? Is this test going to tell me of patients that we already know, let's say are allergic to chicken? Oh, there's all these dogs who we already know are allergic to chicken. Is this test going to be good at saying, yes, they're allergic to chicken or vice versa? We have a bunch of dogs who we know have no food allergy problem. Is this test good at telling me that, yes, they don't have any food allergy problems? So um, when we look at those tests as scientists and analyze it, they are poor in their accuracy, meaning that if we take known populations and predict what's going to happen, it's bad. But what you're telling me is, is what we call anecdotal evidence or trends that we're seeing. And she so, has double blind studies. Like she's peer reviewed. Yeah. It's, it's something that I haven't read her study specifically, but I do have um, a scientific publication. It came from, and I can certainly, um, Anybody, I think, can access the abstract. It's from uh, the Journal of Small Animal Practice. Um, and so that's a, a veterinary scientific journal. Um, and what these um, scientists, veterinary scientists did um, was they sent in 10 fur and saliva samples uh, were submitted from a known allergic dog and a normal non-allergic dog. They also sent in um, some fake fur samples and some water. Um, because they were trying to figure out, could the test differentiate between? Um, I think NutriScan is just saliva. Okay. Okay. So um, I'm not sure that that's talking about the same, same thing, thing I'm talking about. Okay. Um, so 
I will tell you that in the veterinary dermatology world, um, we feel that the most accurate test for quote unquote test is a dietary elimination trial is not a test that's run at a laboratory. Um, so that doesn't mean that we can't have success from one of those other tests because I'm in a referral practice too. A lot of times what'll happen is that if a test is done, it's done and then something is changed and that pet comes to see me because that didn't work. So there could be a whole subset of patients that are very successful in the test was very successful for them. They never need to come to see me as a veterinary dermatologist, if that makes sense. Right. So where I'm, where I am in kind of the mix is I'm catching them where the vet school, the veterinary dermatologist has not been successful at all in treating and the family's like, and in the meantime, my dog is like, we're not really fixing anything. And they're going and doing this NutraScan test and having so far, everyone who's done it, mm-hmm. following the recommendations from NutraScan has had clearing up of the problems. So that's the part. And I'm not quarreling with you about, you know, where you stand, obviously. Yeah. I'm just going to give you, while that's anecdotal, it's kind of compelling anecdotal. No. And I am excited for patients when they get better, especially if it's food allergy based, because we can fix that problem. Yes. Your pet may never be able to eat. I I don't know what chicken and rice and eggs ever again, but if that's going to fix your pet's problem and it doesn't have its uncomfortable skin problems or ear problems or gut GI problems, that is great because we are essentially fixing that problem. And so I am excited. I am yeah, excited no. for patients who are food allergic. Yeah. And and really, a lot of what we're seeing from NutraScan isn't that there's an allergy. It's that there's a sensitivity and the overall load is what's impacting the dog. So it's not so much the way it's been explained to me is it's not so much any one thing. It's yeah. that and there are things like dust mites that we're never going to eliminate. Right. So just like human and allergies, mm-hmm. like there's just you're never going to get away from grass. Correct. correct. The desert. (laughs) Correct. Correct. And there's still allergens in the desert. They're different. But that's sort of a good segue to Tina, because when we talk about allergens that we know we can't eliminate, eliminate like pollens or dusts or let's say it's a dog and it's allergic to the cat in the house. Can that can happen? I mean, I'm allergic to cats. Um, Animals can be allergic to other animals in terms of danders. Um, Traditionally, in what I consider traditional veterinary medicine, as opposed to like Eastern veterinary medicine or or things that are alternative or homeopathic and traditional veterinary medicine, what we'll do for those patients is formulate what we call allergen specific immunotherapy. Um, But what typically when I'm talking day to day with my clients, I call it an allergy vaccine, but it's different. It's not a vaccine in the same respect as thinking about getting a rabies vaccine. Um, so that's why the terminology allergen specific immunotherapy is a better phrase. It's just a mouthful, but it's what happens if I'm a human, I am a human as a human, <laughs> if I go to a human allergist and get tested and put on an allergy shots, that's immunotherapy. And we can right. do the same thing for our dog patients that are allergic that way. So well, that's interesting. Point, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's so they can cool. be. Um, tested and put on immunotherapy. It requires a lot of communication um, and expertise. And it's something, in my opinion, and I don't, 
I, I worked as a general veterinarian for several years. I really liked dermatology, which is why I became a specialist. Um, but there's a lot that can be done that doesn't require very much fancy equipment when we talk about dermatology things. You know, if a dog needs a specific type of surgery, sometimes you have to go see the specialist because they need a certain equipment or a certain orthopedic plate. I mean, there's just things that can't be done. In veterinary dermatology, we don't have very much fancy equipment. I don't have a lot of tools and things that um, aren't available to everyone. But in my practice, probably 90% of the dogs I see I'm, are seeing me because they have skin allergies of one type or another. And so a lot of those dogs were doing these environmental allergy tests on and making them this environmental allergy vaccine or immunotherapy. So that is what I do day in and day out. When I worked as a general vet, I only did that a couple times over the couple years I worked um, where there were pets where that was going to happen. Um, the reason I'm saying this all is that um, I see a lot of pets that, not a lot, but I see some pets that have been put on an allergy vaccine, had some sort of allergy testing for environmental allergies done, and it's not been beneficial. And then as a veterinarian, you get in a sticky situation because I think, well, I do think this is going to work. I know, you know, we know this is the reason the dog has its symptoms. It's environmental allergies because it happens in Ohio. It happens not in the winter and it happens spring, summer, fall. Well, in the winter, everything's cold and snowy in Ohio. So it makes sense. It's pollen allergy, but we need to sometimes take that knowledge that we have as the veterinary specialist with the test results we get to execute the treatment most successfully. Um, so I right. guess the long and the short is that sometimes you need the experience to manage that to get the best outcome. And I'm assuming for a lot of dermatological stuff, like the highly stressed, anxious dog is going to be more prone to having, right, that's impacting the immune system. So that like the dog, the Doberman with the lick granuloma. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's interesting. That's a whole nother thing. But um, I, there's no, there's no published scientific evidence that says that allergic, anxious allergic dogs are worse than other allergic dogs. But anecdotally, I think that it is. There's certain breeds like um, Bichons are a breed that we see where I feel like sometimes it's harder to manage their itch. And I think it's because they are more anxious high strung breed. Personally, I, I'm not a dog trainer. I don't work with them in that respect. And so what we know is in humans, people who have eczema or atopic dermatitis or the skin manifestation of their allergic allergy, they will say, if I'm stressed or I'm having an anxious period, my skin disease flares up. It's not that the skin disease is because of their stressful experience or anxiety, but it makes the symptoms worse to answer your point. So I do wonder that. What's interesting is Dobermans may have a genetic predisposition to developing lick granulomas separate from allergies, <laughs> but a whole nother discussion. Well, I think so, stress is, is under evaluated in animals. I think that stress is um, a significant, may not be a cause, but it can be a significant deterrent to recovery. It can interfere with, um, a whole lot of things going on with the dog, whether it turns out to be a dermatological or a behavioral or some other, you know, I, just like in humans, I think if you are stressed, your recovery time from something is, is lowered. I think that it can influence, you know, all kinds of things, your immune system, your blood pressure, whatever. And I think sometimes that that is not necessarily 
addressed for dogs is is that you know I, I just remember um, my Zuzu who um, as many of our listeners will know is special. She um, she tends to be a little bit on the I'm kind of anxious and I, I, I let me put it this way I explained it to somebody the other day I am Zuzu's emotional support animal. Right? <laughs> so. When it came time to spay Zuzu, I knew that a regular spay would be extraordinarily stressful for her. The recovery time, the, the, the hospitalization. So I had a laparoscopic spay done for her. And it was primarily because I wanted to reduce the stress involved with spaying for her. And um, it, it worked out really well. I mean, the, the place I went, their, their uh, little slogan is spay today, play tomorrow. Well, it's not quite that compact, but it's pretty close. And so I think that sometimes we forget that animals can have stress reactions to things as well. And that may come out. And I would imagine you see that in, in skin, that it does influence the, the, the quality of the, of the treatment, or if a dog is high, is highly stressed, it's much more difficult for them to recover. So do you address stress in dogs? We do, probably not as much as we should. I would say that the influence of, of, Stress on disease conditions, whether it's dermatology or otherwise, is not as as well understood or well appreciated in veterinary medicine as it is in human medicine. And it's fortunately, difficult, it's difficult to study. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. Like, how would you have a control for that? Yeah. I the the best way that I've seen it studied, quote unquote, in the literature is drawing like cortisol levels because it's a stress right. hormone level, right. and so that's or. Um, there's a great study, not about dogs, but about cats and using this feline pheromone at veterinary visits. And so measuring heart rates or behaviors and sort of, um, their nonverbal cues, if you will, that they give you about that. Um, clawing and biting. Yeah. And so I, I think there's two levels. They're so subtle. They lines. Um, I think there's multiple levels of stress management too in dogs. There is the stress of I I need this patient to heal or recover, sort of like Julie was talking about, um, and we want to make sure that we're minimizing their stress. And there's also um, a, a issue with coming to the veterinarian's office, like you said about a veterinary visit being like an alien abduction, and how can we, to the best of our ability reduce that stress. I mean, obviously there are situations or scenarios where we have to do something or get something done. And, and especially when we're in emergency situations, um, I'm lucky because in veterinary dermatology, we have very few emergencies. Um, (laughs) I chose that specialty. Um, but so that we can make the experience overall a better experience for that pet when it comes to the veterinarian's office. Um, because one, then the pets, the next time that dog comes, hopefully it continues to build on its good experience. Right. But secondly, it will make us as a doctor or as the veterinary nurse working with me have a safer experience, a less stressful experience. And I might be able to do a more thorough job of examining that pet or doing what I need to do because we're not having to, to cut corners because, oh, we can't look in this dog's ears because it, you know, we can't, hold its ear, hold it still for its ears. So um, it's a whole nother podcast and I'm not the best expert in that area, but I think (laughs) that we need to have a culture shift in veterinary medicine and, and work on perhaps 
helping our patients experience that in different ways. One is to, you know, have these positive veterinary visits where nothing really happens. Yes. Right. Except positive stuff. Um, that's hard. Well, that's a happy visit. Yeah. A happy right. visit. And, and, and I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, my husband was just reading an interesting study about negative experiences and how those are really impactful in learning. And that for every negative experience, you have to have a minimum of four positive experiences yeah. in order to yeah. counteract it. So I right. think and in, most in, of us are busy. Like right. think about the average family with like two and a half kids and dog. Like yeah. really? We're gonna we're gonna go to the vet five times. Like we're gonna pack everything we're gonna go up once a week with for the string next cheese month. and go to the vet five times. What? <gasps> yeah. Right. Like, well and, yeah. and for me it's more like a ten to one thing. I mean if I, I have a negative experience. I kind of <laughs> wish that that would be something pet sitters would offer. Like oh. we will go. Like think about what a great service that would be. Like I will pick up your dog who's a nervous Nelly. We'll yeah. ride in the car. We'll make sure yeah. that's comfortable, right? Like that would be a great little. I don't know that anyone would pay for it. Like you'd be working for free. But so, can you speak a little bit about Cytopoint? Oh yeah, I'd be happy to speak about Cytopoint. And as a disclaimer, I am a veterinary dermatologist, so I use Cytopoint. I have not been. Um, I have not done any specific speaking, been compensated by Zoetis who manufacture Cytopoint, um, but we certainly use it in veterinary dermatology a lot. I think that it is a great product. Um, it is used for dogs, um, just in case any cat owners are listening. It's not something that's used in cats because it was specifically designed for dogs. Um, it falls under the category of what we call symptomatic treatments for itch in dogs, um, but it's what's called a monoclonal antibody. Um, it's actually very exciting because it's the first monoclonal antibody used in veterinary medicine. Um, it is um, a USDA approved drug to treat um, itching from atopic dermatitis in dogs. So itching from environmental allergies in dogs. Um, it's given as an injection in the veterinarian's office, an injection under the skin. So pretty non-invasive. Um, on average, it typically in my experience, and again, my experience might be different than a family veterinarian. So my experience lasts about four to five weeks. Um, to provide itch control. So a dog who has allergies may be licking and chewing their feet a lot, scratching at their ears, you know, rubbing their back on the floor, scooting their belly across the ground. Those are all symptoms of itch in a dog. And Cytopoint is going to block a certain itch signaling chemical um, in the body so that that itch signaling chemical can't go into its little puzzle piece receptors to create this response. Um, it appears to be and has been a very safe product to use for itching in dogs, um, meaning that it doesn't seem to have very many side effects at all. It doesn't have um, any drug interactions, meaning it can be used with other medicines. Um, it can be used in dogs of um, really any age that would need it. Um, there's not any age restrictions. Um, but it still falls under the symptomatic treatment, meaning it's right. just like if I have bad allergies. I'm allergic to cats, which is true. Um, I take Zyrtec to help with my symptoms. If I stop taking Zyrtec, I'm still allergic to cats. If a pet stops getting Cytopoint, they're still allergic. Okay. So I'm going to ask a So, yeah. so I adopted a pug from rescue a little over a year ago. He, he probably honestly needs bilateral Tikas. Yeah. Like he's had ear infections his whole life. My vet and I have worked diligently, like I had alarms set on my phone for how many times we were 
treating ears all day, okay. every day. Like we've, and we've challenging that is, and we've made a ton of progress. Cytopoint has been very, very helpful for him. Um, obviously, oh, she's cute. Sorry guys. Like we just got to see the clumber spaniel puppy and that's a big old wad of cute. Yes, she is. We'll have to put a picture up on the Family Dog Podcast page yes. on Facebook. And, and um, of her chewing her mother? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's a Mouthing. lesson. Okay, so so is there a loss of efficacy over time or is or do we see that Cytopoint long term is helping? So there does not appear to be a loss of efficacy over time of how the drug works. But I think we have to keep in mind because I have had patients where we've used it and then the owners say it's not working as well as it used to. And there's different reasons that that may happen. One of them is if a dog develops a skin infection again, because that's another common symptom of allergies or recurrent skin infections. If they have a skin infection, that can add to the level of itch on top of the itch that their allergy uh, in and of itself right. causes. And so maybe Cytopoint, you know, if you, if I had a graph, I would do it. Um, I'm signaling with my hands, which is less helpful on a podcast, but if um, you know, Cytopoint controls the itch that is the allergy alone, and that's, you know, a, a puzzle piece. If we put on another puzzle piece on top of that, now we're exceeding the itch control that Cytopoint can manage. And also the itch that comes from skin infection is probably in terms of how the immune system signals and stuff might be a different mechanism of itch signaling than right. how allergy itch signaling happens. So that's where Cytopoint can have loss of efficacy. The other thing I've, I've seen is that a lot of dogs with environmental allergies, their disease is progressive, meaning it gets worse over time. It doesn't mean that they're going to die from it, but maybe their reactions to the allergens are stronger. So they have more itch or more symptoms, or they're becoming allergic to more items. So what used to be good control with the Cytopoint is now only providing 50% control because, oh, the allergy has enlarged, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect, perfect. sense. Perfect sense. Um, it there, reminds there, me a little bit of like trigger stacking with behaviors. If yes. you have one oh, behavior, yeah. right, and you have a certain reaction here, you put another be, you know, another trigger on top of that. Yeah. Then, then what you're doing isn't going to be as effective. And it sounds like the same thing with itching. It's almost trigger stacking of itching. Yeah, exactly. And so when I have a client who calls and says, "Well, you know, we've been getting Cytopoint. It was controlling my pet symptoms, but now it's not." A lot of times, you know, if we haven't seen them, I say, "Well, we need to examine your dog because." Maybe there are new things happening that we didn't know about, or maybe there's infection that we're not needing to address, or, you know, on occasions, oh, we forgot to give flea control for three months. That's why we're itching now because right. something right. that, you know, slipped through the cracks. Right. It's not right. fair to, for people to, to ask you to sort of diagnose over the phone saying, no. you know, things are worse. It's just kind of like people call me and say, well, I had this behavior and I'm like, I'm I'm sure you do. Um, I am not going to give you an opinion as to what's causing it until I get a chance to, to meet the dog. So yeah. I think it's really important to understand that sometimes these things, um, sometimes there's more than one cause for a, for mm -hmm. a problem. I mean, uh, it's rare, I know, in behavior that it's just one thing that's causing the behavior problem in this dog. It's usually multiple things, some more important than others. And I'm sure that in dermatology, it's the same thing. And that one problem may weaken the immune system so that another problem, which is just sort of sort of skulking there, then erupts because the immune system has been compromised and it takes, it's very opportunistic. You know, yeah. I, oh, we have, we have yeah. seizing it, the moment 
to yes uh, or things a lot of things look the same in veterinary dermatology what's interesting julie is that you said that the immune system weakens what's interesting and this is actually another thing that a lot as my uh, the pet owners that bring their pets to most dogs most dogs that come to see me the reason they're having issues is because their immune system is overreacting. Allergies are an overreactive immune system. I'm like I've said, I'm allergic to cats. So my body quote unquote sees cat dander as something dangerous and is trying to fight it off. Right. So most dogs with allergies, cause I do have a lot of clients who said the same thing you do all, well, you know, well, we need to get their immune system stronger. No, actually we don't. We need to retrain it <laughs> to not see this thing as dangerous. Right. Um, right. To, right. To mask the symptoms. Right. So it's, it's the immune system going, it's a dragon. And you're like, it's a kitty cat. Exactly. It's just a kitty cat. It's not a dragon. But right. it could be. But in the sense that the immune system is so focused on that one, that one particular thing that something else then has the opportunity to sort of come to the forefront because the immune system is so busy fighting the, the dragon rather than the kitty cat. Yeah, it could be that or or sort of an innocent bystander effect. Oh, the immune right. system's trying to fight this off. And oh, as an unfortunate consequence, this is like an ear infection is a great example. There are normally low numbers of yeast and bacteria in the ear canal normally in any dog. And Mm -hmm. if there's allergies, the immune system is sending itch and inflammation and and swelling signals to the skin in many different places, but including the ear. And so then this ear canal is changed. It's inflamed. It's smaller. It's swollen. Probably like Tina's pug's ear canal was at some point in time. No, Uh, it still is. I mean, we, we do all of the things and have, I, I, um, you've probably heard this said before. Um, but it's like his ear is a, an eternal fountain of gook. Like there is like, no matter what we do, there is not more or less gook. Yeah. Like no amount of cleaning impacts it. It just makes the pug mad and yeah. is yeah. uncomfortable for everyone. And so we're kind of in this weird holding pattern where we're like, okay, Cytopoint's helping. It's not really helping the ears, but yeah. but his skin is better. His coat's better. He's happier. Yeah. What's that, his overall quality of life? It sounds like it's improved a lot with the great It has. Reason. Like we've worked really hard on it, but he's also... I mean, he has tremendous hearing loss and whether that will be permanent or not, we don't know. And, and, and he came to me that way, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't like we ignored that his ears got no. out, but, no. um, but yeah, like it's the cyto point's been a big help, but I've had someone on a, you know, and dog forms are always great for people blowing up all sorts of crazy things. But somebody was like, cyto point killed my dog. And I was like, okay, I, I'm not sure that that like that. I don't see that showing up anywhere. I mean, I suppose there is always the well, I gave my dog heartworm preventative and then he got hit by the bus. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, that things can co- And I'm not. And that sounds like I'm mocking. I'm just trying to use a big example of like there can be co-occurrences of things that it might feel related when it's not. And that's why I was asking about Cytopoint. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm seeing, like, there's very few side effects. Like, there's not really a lot that's problematic with it. And this person is like, absolutely, this is what murdered my dog. And so yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, wait, what? And in that scenario, I would ask that person, because one of the things, anytime a drug is on the market, whether it's an FDA or a USDA drug, um, 
if there is an adverse effect, it should be reported. And so, you know, and, and the veterinarian who administered or prescribed the medicine knows how to do this. Um, if you have a medicine, like if you look in your heartworm prevention on the fine print of the package insert, it'll have a phone number where you can call to report an adverse event. But some products, you know, they're tested in advance of them coming to market, um, whether it's a, you know, flea prevention chew or this cytopoint, it's tested because, you know, a drug company and us veterinarians don't want things coming out that are unsafe. We don't right. want them to come out with side effects we don't anticipate. Um, but when, you know, you can only test so many things before it's released and then it's out being used by millions and millions of pets instead of thousands or hundreds. And right. there may be some aftermarket, what we call aftermarket effects. Well, the only way the drug companies learn about it. The only way us veterinary scientists learn about it is if they're reported. And so I would argue for this person on the forum is, well, has your veterinarian reported this as an adverse event? And right. even the ironic part to your point, Tina, is even if it literally was my pet received this medicine, then they got hit by a car and, you know, they had a terrible fatal injury that still has to be reported in association with that drug, even though logically you could say, well, that's just a very unlucky day. Right. But I mean, wouldn't that be true for if you're like all, okay. So all dogs have an expiration date, yes. right? That does not mean that the food they were on or the heartworm preventative they were on or the Correct. flea and tick preventative they're on or the cyto <clears throat> point or the anything else they were on was causative. Correct. Right. And I, I really struggle. I really struggle right now, kind of culturally with everything is about how we feel instead of about like what fact there is. Right. Like I, I know for a long time, everybody was like, oh my God, coconut oil solves (laughs) all of the things. Brings world peace. You know? (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. And I was like, you know what coconut oil solves for, for the world, the people who are making money selling coconut oil, coconut oil. right? Like yeah. it's probably beneficial on some level for some things and probably exacerbates other things. Like yeah. there's, we all would love a magic. Like if you do this one thing, I would love if there was one thing that I could do that would fix the pug's ears because <laughs> I'm heartbroken that yeah. he can't hear us telling me we love him. Yeah. Right. He's super happy. I'm not sure he really cares, you yeah. know, and it's a pug. So hard of listening. Yeah. But, yeah. but it, I, I mean, of course I would like him to feel better. Yeah. I, I know from the dermatology standpoint, I'm often saying to families, okay, I realize you went to the dog, to the vet six years ago about this, but, but medicines changed a little and yeah. we might be able to get that dog a better quality of life. Yeah. Definitely. And but, I, but we all have a finite budget too. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And and there are there's this and this is something as veterinarians in general, regardless of if you're a specialist or or a primary veterinarian and regardless of what part of the country or world you work in, but the vast majority of us veterinarians have to have a spectrum of what we're going to talk about because not every client that comes to see us can even if the recipe for how to problem is a b and c not every person can follow that a b and c recipe you know i my job is to tell them this is the you know a b and c is what we need to do because this will fix the problem and this is the best option 
but it also costs this much. And for some people, they say, and I want them to tell me, this isn't the option for me. Do we have an option that will still work? Um, and then it gets into not so much in veterinary dermatology because of what I do, but it gets into issues of, um, there's all, oh God, this is a whole nother podcast, but about um, moral dilemmas that veterinarians face and what right. decreases are um, mental health wellness because of having to make compromises or exceptions. Yeah. Happens, happens to dog trainers too. Right? Yeah, it really does. Like there, there is a lot of suffering that, and, and again, people have limited resources, no matter whether it's yeah. time, energy or money. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it, it can be pretty brutal. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure because there's probably people who just want to throw money at their dog's behavior problem. Like, oh, I can pay you all you want, but you're like, no, no, you need to invest the time. Like, it doesn't matter how much money you have. This right. needs to be time. Yeah, I, I think that what, what a lot of people don't realize is the level of compassion fatigue that plagues the pet industry, and especially among yeah. vets, and that vets are actually uh, at, at a much higher risk than other medical professionals for suicide. Yeah, And I think yeah. a lot of it is be, because of uh, not only the, the difficult cases that they see, but perhaps that that ability to fix an animal but they can't for a variety of reasons and that can be extraordinarily taxing and i think that um, we have to understand that that our our vets give us everything they can and sometimes that takes a lot out of them when they do that yeah Yeah. um, sometimes we say no because it's the best thing to say no about whether it's no i can't come in you know overnight or no you know I can't stay later because I have to go do this personal thing or, you know, no, I can't. Yeah, exactly. So So I will say Colleen Pilar, who used to be the co-host, she's the first wife, the first podcast wife. (laughs) I'm I'm the second wife. Um, So she actually has a really great, and for the vets who listen to the podcast, like I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, Colleen actually left the podcast partially because this, resilience issue and compassion fatigue and issue in the animal industry has honestly just taken too many people we love, um, whether in the veterinary field, the shelter field, or the training field. Um, and so she's actually started her own organization called Unleashed Resilience. Um, and she, or it's a uh, Unreleased oh, at home and, and at work, uh, and it has right. it's, it's resiliency training, and I I yeah. think we both have gone through some of her resiliency yeah, training. Yeah, and it's fantastic, and it they is. actually have a veterinary specific one, um, and it's it's really so I totally mangled the name, but Julie will fix that. Um, I, well, but let's put it fan- this way: in the podcast notes, there will be a link yes. to Colleen. Because if you are you having some resiliency problems, you're having compassion fatigue, you're you're feeling burnout. Colleen can really help you. I, I know that when I did my resiliency training with her, um, there was only one of us that was not feeling burnout. Yeah. Over training. The only yeah. one in our entire group. And she yeah. was really able to to sort of help us all turn things around and to use our personal strengths rather than focus on what our weaknesses are and what we need to change. Yeah. Colleen's whole approach is the idea of what are your strengths and how do we apply them? So it's real positive psychology. Oh, and really it's, great, really it great is. resources. Um, which we all need. Like we all, I think, I think the world has gotten kind of, everything is kind of heavy. Yeah. So, so getting things a little bit easier is a win for everybody. Yeah. So 
So, well, that's a great way to wrap up this particular podcast. So for all of you who are feeling very down now because you can't do anything <laughs> for your pets. No, you can. There are a you lot can. of wonderful. You can. There and, and there are a lot of wonderful vets out there who are ready to serve you and your love pet. your vet. Tell love your vet your how vet. much you love them. Right. And um, in fact, there was a great article in, in a whole dog journal just a few months ago about appreciating veterinarians. So I will put a link to that as well Perfect. in the show notes. And thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us today on Your Family Dog. It was a great discussion. And I hope that we've been able to give people to shed some light on dermatological issues. Boy, that's a hard one to say here on Your Family Dogs. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.